Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I wanted to let you know that tonight also sees the release of episode 3 of The Mic Test. The Mic Test is a new series where conductors return and answer a brand new set of 10 questions. And following the first two episodes with Andrew Litton and Jack Van Steen, tonight sees the return of the multi-talented Barbara Hannigan. If you want to hear this new series, go to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And for £10 a month, you will get this new series, a second new series of interviews with prominent figures from the classical music world, group Zoom meetings with other fans of the podcast and myself, plus articles and a monthly bulletin from me about the podcast and my own career. Details can be found in the show notes below. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Peruvian conductor who has held title positions all across the globe, from Norway to New Zealand. He has spent a lot of his career working in the United States, which is where he has just started an undergraduate conducting programme. It's a real pleasure to welcome Miguel Hath Bedoya. Miguel, lovely to talk to you today. How are you? I'm doing great, Michael. Thank you. Good. How's lockdown been for you? Have you been busy score learning? Or I know you've got a new conducting course you're preparing for, but what have you been up to? Well, my last trip back home was mid-March, coming back from Melbourne. And I went straight into uh, quarantine in my room, just for safety. Yeah. And so those two weeks got me thinking. And as every day passed by, concerts were being cancelled. Summer seasons were cancelled. I mean, the opening of the fall were cancelled. So I figured out, well, the best we can do right now, conductors, is first of all, stay in touch with our community, with our patrons, with our audience. Mm. wherever they may be but also for conductors particularly for the younger ones it's a good time to study it's a good time to train to look ahead and be ahead of the game so Mm. those were my thoughts all the way back in March and I've put them all in place and with the exception of one recording concert that I've done for 4th of July the Independence Day here in America with the Forward Symphony Orchestra everything else has been just studying and planning how to get out of this mm, of course um yeah it's it's difficult to plan your own concerts ahead if they keep being cancelled and i found it very difficult to sort of learn pieces of music that i may or may not be conducting um so yeah it's it's been a time of reflection and and you know looking at uh, yeah what to do when we come back i suppose yes I want to take you right back to the start of your life in Lima, Peru. And when did music first enter your life? Um, what instruments did you learn? Uh, how did it all start for you? Well, I should say I enter music rather than music enter my life because I was <laughs> born in a, in a musical family. My mom, who is the ultimate freelance musician, mm-hmm. You know, had music and at home, choirs, groups, ensembles. I mean, you know, she's the choir director and, and keyboardist, but the music I heard wasn't classical or anything of what I do now. It was just music yeah. and most of it Latin American folk music or music for weddings. That's that's where I had my first actually music encounters, mm. you know, at, at, at events and things like that. And I know I started playing the piano, except I don't remember when, because it must have been one of those things that, you know, we all did. Somebody, I mean, it's just my sister and me and single mom mm. living in my grandma's house. My my cousin. So everybody picks up an instrument somehow, or they get a sign. I don't think you get to pick. 
my sister remembers picking the guitar so that she chose the guitar mm. and you know she's a classical guitarist now but in my case it just it just happened i think and i never practiced or i never learned any music in the repertoire i just played the piano so i knew how to what i call maneuver the keyboard mm. which later came in very handy and so a little bit of this a little bit of that helping my mom my first conducting experience was helping her at a wedding when she had two weddings at the same time you know by that <laughs> point i was probably 15 i said well you have to take care of one so my first conducting experiences were, were just conducting ensembles of, of any kind as needed mm. and that was that so the, then the biggest breakthrough was through well she started playing violin never too good for you know to, to play anything but anyway the when i was i think 16 or so my mom was asked to to hire the choir for for a short opera company about three months long this is when Luigi Alva would come to Lima during the European summer so this is the winter for us and my mom was hiring hiring the choir and I just came along with her as well and I was hired there or or I applied for a job as backstage crew mm. So I was doing everything from behind the scenes. This is the old theater in Lima where everything was manual. But I was the only stage crew that could read music. So that got the attention of some, including the stage director. So they assigned me other things behind, behind the stage or technical things such as lighting or lighting coordination, cueing, the curtain calls, standby for singers. I mean, all kinds of things. And that really is what got my my attention to become a musician or my interest because because of of opera and everything around opera, you know, the voice, the music, the orchestra, the costumes, the libretto, languages and you name it. Mm. So did your mum teach you conducting? No, as a matter of fact, my mum didn't want me to be a musician. All right, okay. <laughs> what do they want you to be? Something normal, she said. <laughs> well, what, yeah, what is normal? But yeah, I know what you mean. Um, what was your next step? Um, once, you, once you got the bug from, from being in the theatre? Well, the biggest challenge is that we didn't have a music school in the country. Ah, okay. So, slight problem. So, that's what she was thinking. I mean, how and where are you going to study this? By then, this is in the mid-80s, the economy of Peru was really, really bad and inflation was huge so now i can see you know that what are you possibly going to think about doing so i made a plan or i had made a deal with her say if i don't get to study what i want within you know a couple of years then sure then i'll just stick to something normal <laughs> and who knows what that would have been yeah. so i went to the closest country to peru which is chile and mm. Chile has had a lot more activity than, than Peru over years. Probably Claudio Rao lineage would have been, you know, recent why. Mm. And also, I mean, Chile and Argentina were quite advanced in, in the arts. The Italians ended up in Argentina and the Germans in, in Chile. So, you know, they brought their traditions. And I knew that there was enough there. But, but this time I'm doing correspondence with the University of Chile, you know, mm. by letter and stamps and, you know, correspondence takes forever and sometimes it never comes all together or things are missing. So bottom line is I grab my things, save some money, get myself to Chile to realize that 
actually they didn't teach conducting <laughs> either and somehow they failed to tell me that <laughs> that's good of them <laughs> so, so but there it's where i learned about the curtis institute of music because mm. otherwise i would have never ever aim to go to that school so i thought well now i'm here i better start planning how to leave here and i started my application process and the Curtis Institute of Music didn't require any evidence of me, any proof that that I knew what I knew. You know, mm -hmm. I was 18 years old then. So that to me was a door that at least was there to be knocked because mm -hmm. other programs said without degree, without this, without that, you can't even apply, which I understand. So I prepared for this audition, which I got invited to oh, six months or so, seven months. There were very specific tasks, one of them including two excerpts from the Rite of Spring. Oh, wow. Oh, yes, yeah. So, and so, yeah, I went there and I got in, and that's when all started for me. You know, my first official studies in school, in, in music school, were at the Curtis Institute of Music, where I got my undergrad degree in orchestral conducting under Otto Werner Mueller. Mm. And that was, I mean, had not been for that, probably we, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. <laughs> for that, for that, I'm sure. And so uh, Otto Werner Mueller was your teacher at Curtis um, what was he like? What was his overall um, ethos? Because you know, teachers teach in such a different way, and I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to it later on when talking about your own teaching. But what was he like? He was very strict. I, I took this part of Pavo Yarvi. You know, he was graduating, so there was only one spot I came in. So in the next year, in my second year, Alan Gilbert joined the class. So we all were very, very, you know, different students with different backgrounds. But to your question is, to Mueller, we, we all were the same in the sense that the classes were all together. It's in the first year and the last year, they, they attended the same things and they were addressed the same way. So there was no step one, step two, step three. If you're in this, you're in this. Yeah. I mean, he came from Germany after the Second World War, so he endured you know, different tough experiences that none of us can probably relate directly. So his whole point was, you want to do this, you want to be respectful of the music you are conducting. Mm. That was it. So if you don't know the music, then you shouldn't be doing this. If you feel like, if you don't feel like studying, you know, these endless hours or details of scores or background or content, then you should have you should be doing nothing to do with conducting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was very, very clear on. And then we, we didn't have a lab orchestra every week. And mind you, I didn't conduct a lot. I mean, when I see now that programs have hours of conducting, but without supervision, I'm not sure which one is, which one is better, honestly. But we yes. may have only, you know, 20, 30 minutes, the most, the most. Uh, in those cases that you were not, you weren't kicked out of the podium before you even made it to your... To your, you know, to your goal. Mm. So, because the orchestral sound can only be learned with an orchestra next to an orchestra. Yes. Now we were very fortunate enough that the Philadelphia Orchestra was next door, you know, a couple blocks down, and so you could connect, you know, the sounds of what you were studying with the sounds of an orchestra and your lab orchestra. So the dots would would connect rather than 
just talk about it and, and never put your hands on. Mm. So I would say that you know, those would be in, in, in a nutshell what, what he was after with extreme, what should I say, tightness of training. There was no between, either you did it or you did it. Yeah, I think that's a, a good attitude. You know, you, you, you shouldn't take things half-heartedly. And uh, funnily enough, um, I re-listened to my interview with uh, Karina Kanalakis recently, mm -hmm. and she, she was taught by Alan Gilbert. And, you know, he said a similar thing to her about playing the violin. You know, if you want to be a conductor, you've got to put the violin down for a year and you've got to take it very seriously, which, you know, it's a, it's a perfectly good attitude to have. Um, did you have any, if you weren't conducting a, a, the lab orchestra or, or, or any orchestral players, did you also do piano classes as well? Because that's not a touchy subject, but it's an interesting subject when it comes to learning conducting about two pianos and conducting two pianos and whether it's any good. Did you do any of that? We didn't have any any of it. If anything, oh. we always had ensembles of some sort. Rather conduct something small, even Stravinsky's L'Histoire des Soldats, if anything, that is that reflects the score in reality, so yes. that the sounds can translate into something. Now, having said that, there was this one summer I spent at Tanglewood, starting with say Josiah and Gustav Meyer. I was just part of the class. It was about 15, 20 of us. And that was different because, yes, there was the Tanglewood Music Center Orchestra, yeah. but there were also sessions with two pianos. And that was slightly different, I have been looking back, because everybody had conducted already by that point. So we were just discussing other things, I suppose. You were not learning. Yeah. So I, I find that there's a difference. Because, for instance, if I need to illustrate something, or Mueller would occasionally illustrate something, make a point. Oh. Of, of something specific. You don't need to bring a whole orchestra to make a point that lasts one measure or two measures. Yeah. So I think it depends on how the tools are used. I see that with my children. I say, if this is a tool, rather than the means of what you're doing, such as the devices or the applications, those are tools to get to learn to something. Yeah. So as long as your tool is that and, and gets you to, to learn a specific thing, I don't see why not. So I, I can't answer also this in a general way i can't say yes or no because depending on the context and the circumstances i mean if, if you want to do for instance a, an opera recitative of specific things i mean sometimes with eight string players sometimes better than you know to have more than one person per part because at least they'll be more reflective of of anybody reacting to you with the possibility of reacting differently you know when yes. you, but, you don't have to, but you don't have to have 10 mm. per part to to get the same point if the if the goal is to make a point of something so <clears throat> that that's my you know my answer regarding that topic well i mean yeah i mean I, I think you're right i mean it made me think about my times when i used to teach the violin um you know you give them a study by sevchik or by kreutzer or by somebody and the people would say to me well don't i need to learn it all i'd say well no you just need to learn the point of why i've given you that study which is to play off the string or to learn how to do trills or and it's the same you know if you you need two pianos to make a point, use it. But then, but you, you're not going to learn necessarily how to conduct orchestras by like, conducting two pianos. That's definitely not the case. But yeah, right. I, I take your point completely. Having left Curtis, you went to Juilliard as well, I read. Correct. I did your learning with Otto Werner Mueller there. Mm. And there was one reason. <laughs> when I met him yeah. at the audition, I actually auditioned also at Juilliard. Yeah. And basically, he, he said, well, 
I can take you at either school with only one condition. And I said, which ones? That you study a long time. <laughs> and I said, well, that sounds like a great deal to me. You know, mm. also coming from Peru. I mean, what, what else am I going to, yeah. to do? That's what I spent the two degrees with him. It's simply because I didn't know anything about music. And he made it very clear in my very, very first lab orchestra session. He said something along the lines of, oh, young man, you might think you have some talent, but you have no no knowledge, you know nothing about this music, and it was Brahms. And he was totally right. I mean, why would I know anything about Brahms? <laughs> you know, I, I never heard really Brahms symphonies when I was in Peru. I mean, that's that's how how big the void was in my upbringing. But yeah. I had the music of any other kind. So that that's why it took a long time for me to to feel comfortable doing what I do. Well, sometimes somebody's got to be harsh but fair, as the as the phrase goes. Um, you yes. know, if that if that's what it takes, it's what it takes. Mm -hmm. um, so we go out into the big wide world, and then I, as usual, I do my homework, Miguel. And um, there seems to be a period where you seem to be darting backwards and forwards between Peru and the U.S. Your two homes, really, I suppose. You know, that your your birth home and, and where you you've set up your home. When you're music director of the New York Youth Symphony and you're, you're working on the Juilliard staff and the New York Phil staff, but you're also setting up two orchestras in Peru. Um, how did you sort of divide your time? And I'm sure at this point you're now sort of taking tentative baby steps out into guest conducting and things like that. How were those early years? Well, the, the, the reason I could combine my activities based in New York and in Lima was because our hemispheres run different seasons. Mm. So basically I would have a chunk during our spring, which is the beginning of the year. We run in, into calendar, we run by calendar years. Yeah. So then I, that usually coincided with the spring break or so. And then I would spend the summers there, which is mm. you know, three months of, of, of working. And then I would go back another time later in the fall around our Thanksgiving holidays in November and or, or just sporadic trips I mean we're in the same time zone north and south mm. give or take an hour so it's not that you need to do massive massive commuting like I was doing to Norway so yes. it, it was just just this idea of of looking back to where I came from and I always see why are there chances for others why can others be so lucky as I was. And that's still my, my thinking to this day. Mm. You know, I was very fortunate enough. Yes, I worked very hard, but I think music should always be, be what it is, but also be a gateway. There has to be a gateway for people to, to be able to see through or, or want to go through rather than no gateway at all. Mm. So rather, rather than a dead end type situation. And so you still go back to this day um, every year to work with the National Orchestra of Peru, is that what it's called? Right, that's yeah. that's more or less, I think I've skipped yeah. one or two occasions right yeah. now, but yes, I mean, I finished all of that in the year 2000, so I mean, I spent seven years doing it, and that led to many musicians that currently live there, because I brought in you know, dozens of musicians from other countries. That yeah. there, there were at times that we wouldn't have, for instance, a harp in the entire country. There was not a harp player in the whole country. Mm. I mean, you can imagine what that means, or just one bassoon. It's <laughs> crazy. Not, uh, well, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. so many of those musicians have settled there, have children, 
have taught others that in turn have taught others. So I don't want to claim that that became you know, the greatest thing ever done there. But what, it, what I, I did in, in looking ahead was bring people. Yeah. And most of them have stayed, as I said, they've taught. And then that's why we have now multiple orchestras and ensembles, not only in the capital, but in, in other cities of the country as well. Oh, that's great. Um, you did remind me of a little story I was once told about why after the Second Symphony of Sibelius, the, there are no more tuba parts. Um, <laughs> it, and the story I was told is the fact that the one tuba player in Helsinki died after the Second Symphony was <laughs> written and first performed, and that's why he never wrote any more tuba parts. And you talking about no harp and only one bassoon in the country made me think about it. Um, at least now it sounds like you know you could put on anything in Peru, and you now have the musicians for it. So bravo you, and bravo those who helped and set it all up. Um, thank you, thank you. Yeah. But I mean, I've worked in Argentina, and the the passion for music and the way that the the orchestras I've worked with down there work, and they want to learn. And I'm sure it's the same in Peru and in Chile. That their passion for music making is amazing, and 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 I'm assuming that's much the same in your in your home country. Oh, absolutely. I mean, mm. our countries breathe music mm. of any kind. Yes. Most of it is non-orchestral or non-traditional or non-concert music. But boy, I mean, everybody dances, everybody sings. Music mm. is just very much part of our culture for millennia, really. Now that I've been, you know, doing some lectures on, on the music of the, the history of the music of the Inca trails, for instance, you realize that music was there all along all day long, really. That's how they kept going with music. And funnily enough, the word music doesn't exist in our ancient languages, such as Quechua or Aymara. The word music doesn't exist because music is not a thing. So yeah, we have had music. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I'm going to get to your second home, which is the US. So you, from 1998 onwards, you were assistant and then associate at the Los Angeles Philharmonic. When you started in 98, were you assistant to Esa Pekasalanen or were you assistant to the orchestra? Because as I'm sure you know, there's a big difference in, in that role. Yes. Well, I have to give you a context for how it happened. So I was, mm. I was, first of all, I was assistant for just a few months before I was promoted to associate conductor. So... In, in, in early 98, I was invited to do a family concert with the LA Philharmonic. And this was on top of their ongoing week of subscription concerts. So my concert was on a Saturday morning. And I believe I had the Thursday afternoon rehearsal. And this was Rossini's overture to La Cenerentola and Peter and the Wolf. Mm. So something simple, and I had never done Peter and the Wolf by then. So off I go, and off I leave. So it's fine. Hmm. And then about a month later or so, I get a call from the LA Philharmonic, and this person behind the line said, oh, Sapeka Salonen would like to see you, if at all possible. Now, mind you, this is the time without internet, right? Hmm. Without cell phones. So, so much at hand as we have now. So these are, you know, landlines and you have to make an appointment to, to get a phone call. Yeah, yeah. And I said, but does he want to see me, see me or see me conduct? No, 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 he just wants to talk to you. 
in a, of course I've never met him. And, okay, great, we'll, we'll arrange this whenever you're passing by LA yeah. because I was living in Oregon, which is just literally up north and I was flying to New Zealand already. So LA was a point of connecting for me. Mm. So, you know, a couple months, maybe a month or so went by, I ended up going to LA. I arrived and I'm watching a Sepeka's rehearsal of Schumann's third symphony. And when it comes to break, they had told me, and Sepeka would like to see you at, at break so if we can coordinate that. So I go to his dressing room, so I'm taken there and he meets me, he says, oh, hello, Miguel, great to meet you. And you know, so I've, I've, heard, I've heard about your, your, your concert, you know, and I just want to in, invite you to be part of this orchestra in whatever capacity you can be. Mm. How does that sound? <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds <laughs> great, Esopeka. <laughs> no, and I'm, I'm sort of speechless. Mm. And I, then I ask, but don't you want to see me conduct? Oh, not at all. Because the ones that will, con will play under you are the musicians, not me. And they, they already have told me. So do we mm. have a deal? So that's how it was. Brilliant. Yeah. Yes. So <laughs> basically, and, and this was to start as soon as I could. So obviously, as soon as I could, didn't, didn't allow me to do, you know, maybe the three, four weeks. And one of them was my debut at the Hollywood Bowl, that immediate summer or the summer after. And because of my commitments elsewhere, it was clear that I couldn't be an assistant mm. because I couldn't, just your question, I couldn't assist him or yeah. the Flormani. So for practical purposes, then we turn it around and I was assigned about eight weeks to conduct my own projects. And maybe one of those weeks would coincide assisting Esapeka. Yeah. So it, 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 it's hard to answer your question, but it was a little bit, I wasn't his assistant for the year because I would see him only once a year. Yes. Yeah. Maybe twice a year. Mm -hmm. And the first time that he saw me conduct was well over a year into the job in which we both shared a concert. Yeah. In, in the touring situation. So I conducted the first half and he conducted the second half. And other than that, he probably would have never seen me conduct at all. Yeah. But that didn't matter to him. The, the reason why I said it was brilliant is that that's the perfect scenario where he's made it plain from that initial meeting within two minutes that right. the players of the orchestra had chosen you. And that's the biggest green light you can ever get is the fact that, you know, it's not come from a management thing. It's not come from a competition. The yeah. players of the orchestra want you and therefore, you know, well, wow. And if that's the case, well, then, you know, brilliant. Um, right. And I've, I've conducted the orchestra well past my tenure. I mean, until even last year or so regularly, which is, which is great. And as you yeah. said, that's the best compliment that we can, we can have. Now that also has changed dramatically because this is over 20 years now, but it still doesn't, doesn't matter. I mean, we maintain great, artistic relationships yeah the the next period people always find this fascinating how you cope with this with the miles and the jet lag and the body um that you you have two music director jobs which are thousands of miles apart so you do two from the year 2000 to 2005 in auckland in new zealand and up until very recently, I think, Miguel, you correct me if I'm wrong, you've just finished 20 years with the Fort Worth Symphony Orchestra, which also started in 2000. What were your commitments like between the two and, and how many uh, flights were you doing during that time between Fort Worth, uh, Texas and, and Auckland and New Zealand? Well, the, the good thing about long flights for me is that I get to sleep mm. or I get to read books. I very seldom get into music when I'm on, on an airplane because it just it's too much 
you know, in general, and yeah. our brains don't shut off, as you know. So the traveling wasn't an issue, and, and even, you know, working in, in Norway. More importantly is what, what the duties of my position were, and yes. the Auckland Philharmonia Orchestra is a musician's-owned orchestra, so there were mm. a lot of responsibilities delegated across, and I was their first music director. You know, I've been conducting them since 95 mm. on a regular basis. And it became an organic process of, of growth, you know, how the orchestra, you know, could continue developing. In other words, letting go to a certain to a certain degree. Mm. But so my responsibilities were, were very different than in America. When you're a music director, you are the head of the organization from an artistic point of view. Yeah, and, and the whole city as well, isn't it? I mean, oh yeah, you know, they're, they're, everybody's looking at you for, and you've got to you've got to speak to philanthropists and donate people who donate to the orchestra. And yeah, it's a lot more full on than as you said, Auckland, where it sounds like the players and you did it all together as a group, as a exactly. sort of collective. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, auditions, for instance, you know, everybody showed up to auditions, mm. so which is fine. I mean, you any system works as long as it's respected and the goals are a consequence of your actions. If, mm. the, if the outcomes don't line up with what you were thinking, well, maybe there's something that needs to be adjusted. But ultimately, you know, all systems work if done well. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Uh, after your time in Auckland, you then, as you've said a couple of times, you then become principal conductor of, well, put it this way, in English, it's the Norwegian Radio Orchestra, but in uh, the, 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 the title they use is K-O-R-K or Cork uh, oh. in Oslo, an orchestra I've conducted uh, on a couple of occasions mm-hmm. and who seem to be able to turn their hand to pretty much anything because of um, the sort of nature of what they do. Mm-hmm. How did you find that uh, then? I mean, they're, they're a lovely orchestra, and, but uh, what's the rehearsal style like compared to, say, Auckland or Lima or Fort <laughs> Worth? Well, every orchestra has their own way of rehearsing. Mm. It's not a large orchestra in size, as you know, no, no. but it's also a very opinionated orchestra in a good way, yeah. you know, because it's so close. So everybody has to be in, you know, mm. there's nobody that can relax and put the, the weight onto other players. No you, so, there's no, you can't have any passengers in an orchestra that size, can you? Exactly, mm. exactly. So, no, I found them very engaged because everybody had good questions also. There was more for curiosity rather than for rebellious ways that yeah. they needed to have an opinion. But but also, you know, I brought repertoire that wasn't common to them. And you would think even the Dvorak Symphony in D minor was something that they had not not played often yeah. or Beethoven Symphony. So it was an unusual circumstance because being a radio orchestra, they have so much work to do for, for TV, for radio, for films, you, you name it. So yeah. this orchestra doesn't really have an actual concert life. And that's what they wanted to add on to what, what they do. As a matter of fact, the videos that you see from them these days, you know, on Instagram or Facebook are quite original, but mm. that's the nature of the ocean. I mean, you can be playing, you know, uh, at the edge of a cliff, you know, <laughs> in Lofoten or... <laughs> yeah, it's or true. Yeah. And, and that's part, that's part of the, the nature of the, the essence of, of that ensemble. Yeah. Now bringing repertoire, that, that was the key thing, you know, can you always bring repertoire that they'll be engaged, whether new, old, or what I call the new old as well, you know? Mm. And my first, my first task was really in the year 2014 to celebrate Norway's bicentennial. Mm. And it fell on my hands. Right. So I did an enormous amount of study of all kinds of 
Norwegian works, new and old, that's fascinating. I ended up conducting over 50 Norwegian pieces during my tenure there, yeah. and many were world premiere recordings. Always oh, very exciting uh, journey for me. Yeah, it's, it's funny you made me think of the two times I worked with that orchestra. One was in a, uh, in a sort of community sports hall in a suburb very uh, in the north of Oslo, where we did a mixture of Bollywood music, um, Norwegian rock, funk, fusion stuff. Uh, it was a whole mixed thing for TV and radio broadcast. And then the second time was on a floating stage in a lake in the middle of nowhere <laughs> for an opera, opera gala night. Uh, we're also mixing in sort of songs from the shows. And yeah, you, as you said, it, I can imagine them playing almost anywhere in any situation and any, any music at all. But they embrace it all. And that, you know, that's, that's great, isn't it? Well, yeah. Did you find that tougher? Um, I suppose, as you said, you 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 enjoy long flights because you can sleep on them. But was it any tougher, or just the same flying from Fort Worth to Norway and back? Well, you you add the you know the seven or eight hours difference. Yes, yeah. Dad, like, but but I've been I've had enough practice, I suppose. And <laughs> my logic is, you sleep when you feel sleepy, and you eat yeah. when you're hungry, and then yes. it goes. Yeah. Which is a good way of dealing with guest conducting because, you know, if you look at your CV, there's, there aren't many continents or places you haven't conducted, uh, including Birmingham in England, where I remember playing for you, uh, maybe a couple of, of occasions you came. Right. Uh, and so because you've been lucky and you've been a music director uh, for 20, those 20 years in, in Fort Worth or in Auckland or in Norway, how much time do you put across to guest conducting, meeting new orchestras, and also I know that you conduct opera as well, which is a much longer process. You're involved with for many, many, many weeks. Do you try and do you try and have a, a percentage? I mean, obviously you've got your commitments to Fort Worth and the other orchestras, but how do you try and, when you say to your management, you know, I'd quite like three new orchestras this year, and can you fit into opera productions? How does it work? Well, to answer the question really all starts with my family and yeah. the family life and personal life. You know, we have three children. One just graduated secondary school, is going on to university. And we have still two teenagers soon to finish school. So from the year 2000 or 2001 or two, when the kids were came into our lives, then it was a lot clearer that life starts at home. And then if the profession can flourish out of that. So there was never a percentage or a plan to say, I need to achieve this or that. Mm. Once you're a parent, you've got bigger responsibilities right there. And I remember having these conversations with other colleagues, including Esapek Kasalan or Leonard Slatkin or Kurt Mazur, that they all have different you know, personal experiences. Mm. And, I, and I grew up without a father. So you cannot take back time in life and in the life of your children. So in other words, if you haven't spent the time or if you haven't taught them or learned from them, then that time cannot come back ever, mm. ever, ever. Mm. So there was a conscious decision and also why it naturally and organically happened that we stayed longer here, not because it was convenient for us, <clears throat> because we still live here in Fort Worth for a few more years at least, but because everything became one, my job, my life, my home, my family, my wife's plans as well. And the artistic goals kept moving forward, new things grew up, recordings. For instance, I know that, you know, when you say recordings, sure, everybody does recordings here, yeah, but when an auction didn't do recordings at all, didn't do 
broadcast, didn't do any touring. Mm. And for me to be the first one to be able to accomplish these things with an orchestra, those are massive landmarks institutionally, mm. not comparatively. So really, when we were approaching 20 years, I said, well, you know, the best thing to do is to leave it in, in, in good standing mm. and, and wish the best for an orchestra that somebody can take on and, and make it better. Or also, because 20 years is twice as long as the original plan would have been, you know, <laughs> 10 years or so. But then bigger celebrations kept coming up. The centennial, they also turned 100 years in 2012. Mm. Then came my 15 years. Okay, maybe the 15 years. But then shortly after that, there was there was a a work stoppage. You know, there was a strike, yeah. which we could have we could just we could have left, but then it didn't feel right. So we stuck around, you know, through, through the whole process. And I was one of the few music directors that lived, you know, where the orchestra is. Yes. So after that, I said, okay, 20, 20 it is, and it yeah. was, and it just finished literally a couple of weeks ago for, with our last broadcast concert that we were able to. So, I mean, it sounds more like you were more interested in actually when you could have time back home with your family rather than the things I asked, which, you know, as you say, with a young family is important that you they have some knowledge of who you are when you when you walk back through the door. Don't think well, right. there's this strange person who's not been here for three months or something. Right. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, I think that yeah, it's the right way to be. Um, no, but but your question of, for instance, when the Norwegian radio show came into play, basically I give up, you know, eight to nine weeks of potential guest engagement. Yeah. So I turned it yeah. into that. I didn't add it on top of it. So that's why the last, you know, seven, eight years I've conducted, guest conducted less. But, you know, in life you have to choose something. And, and, yeah. and well, it depends how you think. I mean, if your why is, is what holds you, then really everything else is what people perceive from you. You're doing too much or too little. But it really won't matter because you're, the reason of what you're doing this you know things really matter beyond that beyond the facts yes. of conducting but and when it comes to operas that's that's another tough one because the schedule requires us to be in one place for several weeks mm. so i've done a few productions at the santa fe opera which is great because everybody gets to stay in one place you know santa fe it's a beautiful place in the summer so we have camped in santa fe for you know seven, eight weeks and dog included. So everybody loves that. Yeah. And then I did a production at ENO by now 10 years ago. And at that time we decided, well, let's just move to London for, for two months. And yeah. the kids were little, so they could do the schooling, you know, there and stuff like that. And that was another great experience. Then I remember when, when the Four Seasons Opera Theatre opened in Toronto, I, I had also a long production of Barber of Seville and it, it was hard, you know, because you have to be out at least for four weeks in the road to get everything going. But later, I was able to commute for certain performances yeah. because it was just a shorter flight. So you always find the way around, but I don't abuse that. You know, I don't look for, oh, what are the next four productions that can just be there and then everybody just you know, live with that. I'm going to go move on and the next big thing seems to be the start of your new program uh, of uh, a degree in orchestral conducting at the University of Nebraska Omaha is that right yes correct yeah. so I'm, I'm interested to know because obviously we talked 
beginning of the podcast about your time at Curtis and Juilliard with Otto Werner Muller, and then you've had other experiences at Tanglewood. So what will your new programme be like? Uh, I'm sure you've been obviously been organising it, thinking about it during all of this, and possibly further back before COVID even started. What's your time commitment to it, uh, and how much are you looking forward to it? Well, let me start by saying that I'm looking very much forward to it because it's an, it opens up a new door at this stage of my life. You know, I'm 52 years old. So, yeah. and we conductors, you know, we're teachers in a certain way, whether we're actually dictating information or I call it sharing. You know, there's, yes. there's education by mandates, like by order, you know, you have to learn this mm. or you're sharing what you have done and what you know, and it's more student centered you know learner centers it's called so for a long time i always felt behind i was behind all the time you know as, as i entered curtis and my classmate is alan gilbert who lived and ate music forever you know since he was yeah. born so yeah. but there's nothing i can do i mean on the contrary this was an inspiration that one day i may be able to add on and learn little by little because you cannot take also you cannot speed time you, know, you you are who you are when you are, and that's about it. So when I'm in my 30s and in my 40s, I'm noticing the following. And this is very much a situation in the United States, that because the conducting programs have, have been shortened, mm -hmm. not by, let's put it this way, not intentionally, because a master's okay. degree has not been shortened. A master's degree is what it is. But if it's the beginning of your craft, unless you're really, you know, an excellent performer and you know enough, you probably can study conduct it for two years and add on to something. But if yes. you are starting from scratch in the U.S., you can only start from scratch on a master's degree, which is illogical. So the last 20 years have yielded some amazing conductors, which there's and there are very good programs that attend to that, yeah. but have not yielded a basic well-trained conductors yes and i've seen this for and we see this all when we audition for assistants for associates for fellows and all of that and i've had discussions with my colleagues you know for the last 15 years and to realize only then no wonder because no one is training as it used to be before now what i'm excited about is creating a program that will go back to the roots the beginning mm of four years of initial training. So then, then you can do your, your master's degree and yeah. add on to, you know, mastery to what you, what you know. And basically it's a bit of my personal experience. I want to have others the opportunity that I had yeah. because nothing yeah. should prevent you from studying something well. We don't do mm -hmm. this in violin or in piano. I said, well, why don't you study guitar for now and then come back in four years and study violin? I mean, why would we do it? You know, yeah, or, or yeah. composition. Yes, music is music, but you know, every field requires specific, specific things. One of the most shocking things, I don't know if this happens in the UK, but music theory has been reduced to what I call, pardon the expression, the drive-through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just convenient, <laughs> get through, get through, it's fine, it's fine. No, it's mm. not fine. For conductors, yeah. it's not fine. I mean, maybe no, for yeah. others, it's fine. But so, I have this mission now of what I call training somebody well, because in the U and again, this is a US directed program. We have, you know, nearly 2000 orchestras here mm. registered and they all deserve good conductors. So I'm talking about 
youth orchestras, college orchestras, high school orchestras, community orchestras, they all deserve well-trained conductors. I've gone through all of them. I've conducted high school orchestras in, in when I was a student, youth orchestras, community orchestras. So music is music. And more than, more than ever, we need leaders that through music can make sure that what we do, meaning music, will have a future. I do mm. think the future of music is marketing and tools of selling tickets. Yes, they'll get specific things, but we need to train music teachers. And mm. I, my students include music teachers as well, because why couldn't my kids have somebody that will make them love music? And mm. usually this happens through ensembles, not through individual instrument lessons because that's not the case when kids are you know, 12 13 14 15 it's just like in sports you know if, if they if they fell in love with the sport it's probably because of the coach and how it was run because yeah. sports are also tough to to train and to attend and they have these add-on schedules so i'm looking at this program in, in a different line i'm not pretending to to do what my other colleagues do, which is the cherry on the cake, you know, such as Aspen Tanglewood Jeweler, New England Conservatory, and so on, so on. Yeah. And I really want to start from the bottom up so that people have other options, you know, to get well-trained, but maybe to go other places. Yeah, if they want to continue the master's degree and doctorate degree, absolutely, nothing will prevent them. On the contrary, the yeah. master's degree will, much, will be much more fulfilling. Yes, absolutely. I think it's great also that you're you're happy to train people who are going to go back and be teachers. Also, you know, youth orchestra conductors, you know, that's the place where, if we move away from conductor for a moment, that's a place where you can fire the imagination of a young musician. Absolutely. And they want to then go on and be professional musicians. It can also be a place where you can kill the imagination of a young musician well, by exactly. having a conductor there who's not a good conductor, who's an authoritarian, who thinks that that's what conducting is. And I, you know, that's brilliant that, that there'll be generations hopefully to come of people who will go back to their youth orchestras and, in their states uh, and fire kids' imaginations up to wanting to be professional musicians. I think that's, that's yeah. Wonderful. Or if, any, if anything, be music lovers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if, yeah. if music is part of them, then they'll be there for the rest of their life. I yeah. think this applies. I've seen this more now, and I'm, I'm glad I waited because I've seen this from the two ends, from my profession, but also through my kids are bringing they all went to public schools so mm. we have seen the impact in the good and not so good that a teacher can do about any subject because yes. really any subject is the main thing we leave our children in the hands of the teachers for you know one third of the day yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. it's a big responsibility and i just i just want to be i just want to create a gateway basically mm. and i've been working with kids that are in secondary school that want to know what lies ahead of them. And I say, great, you should know what lies ahead of you if you want to. It's like a surgeon. If you want to be a surgeon, you need to actually be told exactly what's in between. You know, yes. you, don't want to, you don't want to get a knife on day one and open, <laughs> cut open a living patient because most likely the person will die. But the same is with music. If you mm. do this at the wrong time, then music is what's going to suffer, you know, not anything else. Yes, so, absolutely. And you asked about my time commitment. Well, there are two semesters in, in the academic year. And every semester has 15 weeks. And I was able to find about 12 weeks for this, but, but with the concerts being canceled, who knows, there may be more. And I can do my workload, let's say from Monday through Thursday or Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And I can just commute since it's just north of here, one hour plus flight. So it's not so complicated. So we'll see, I mean, we'll see how, how much I can add to you know, to, to, to music. 
Sounds like a lot to me. Sounds like you've <laughs> been out an awful lot. Um, one thing loosely connected to your new program, um, and it may be something that you teach them, uh, but it's a question I've asked pretty much every conductor, is that when you come to learn a new score or even revisit an old score, do you have a system for learning it? Do you write things in your score? Do you Are you a, a user of colours like I am, of red, blue and black and all of that? Or do you prefer everything blank, uh, your page or your scores nice and clean and fresh and learn it in a different way? Oh, no, my scores are a mess. <laughs> well, it's like when I read books too. I, 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 it's, I have to have a pencil if, it, if it's a real book, but now mm. with, with tablets, it's so great that you can do annotations and mm. things like that. But yeah, there's, there's no way because I like to comment. So basically I, I write the conversations I have between me and the score. I ended up writing them. Mm. All the questions I have, all the references, or I'm not sure about this. And, and, and I've noticed also that when I write something down, such as a phone number, or take mm. down this phone number, if I write it by hand, then if I just use my thumbs and put it on my phone, I would remember something strongly because it's a slower process when mm. you're writing a number, when you're writing a word by hand, to me, that little extra time makes it more solid and tangible in my system. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, they're not completely a mess because I can still read the music, but I like, I like organizing them also because I, I want to think in investing time with the score for the years to come. So I've gone back to my scores from 30 years ago and all my markings are still there and I recognize them and I don't have to start from scratch. Or I can add on based on years of, you know, having either relearned or compared to other things. Mm. Well, I use pretty much exactly the same system. I write all of the things in. I go back to my scores, I read them, I see. And I remember writing it in or I remember the, the situation where I wrote it in. Right. And yeah, and, it, and it, it's the way I learn through writing things in. I know through this podcast that some conductors would be appalled at that and they do it a different way and and good for them. We're, basically, we all do it our own way, but it sounds like we're very similar in that regard. But, you yes. Know, the, the, your, your thoughts can take 30 years to build, but it doesn't mean that your thoughts from 30 years ago aren't as valid as the ones that you've had 30 seconds ago. Right. The, the four years I spent with the New York Philharmonic were probably the years that I wrote the most and conducted the least with, yeah. because I was conducting the youth orchestra. So I have annotations. And this was a, a, a comment then, Robert Spano, who, whom I met at Tanglewood because he was already, he had been the assistant conductor of the Boston Symphony. Oh. And he did say that he wrote everything that he heard and he saw at all times. So that's that with me. And so I have so many annotations of so many conductors that I do that I saw doing things. And many times I wouldn't understand, but I would write them down, you know, Blumstedt this, or Tillemann when he made his debut, I was there as assistant or with Franz Welser must. So I've witnessed these things that now in looking back, you realize, oh my goodness, you know, I was there and I have notes from just observations that other people did from bowings to breath to slurs to comments because those things disappear in, in the memory mm. or you make them tangible in your memory by writing them down. Barbara Hannigan did exactly the same she said when she started to conduct but even before she started conducting she if Boulez says something about 
something in a rehearsal when she was singing, she'd write it down, even if it had nothing to do with her, even if it was a, a where to breathe in a chord, you know, in the woodwind, she'd write it down and just mark the initials, you know, PB said this. And I, you know, as an orchestral player of 22 years in Birmingham, my, my God, do I wish that I'd marked, marked those things down, but of course you can't. Um, yeah. But yeah, the things, yeah, the, those things, many years later, you're going to read them and think, oh, God, yeah, well, of course that means this. Um, well, that's brilliant. And uh, uh, nice to hear somebody who has a similar sort of um, approach. And yeah, it's great. It's wonderful. Um, Miguel, is there anything you want to talk about before we go on to the, the 10 questions? Well, maybe there's one question you haven't asked that pretty much everybody asks me because <laughs> it was why. And first is when I took on the Eugene Symphony, yeah, I mean, yeah. I on the position from Mary Nelson, right? But then, back then, I mean, this is in the 90s, people in Manhattan, in your city, say, why are you going there? I mean, it's so far, right? Why? This is before the internet. Then when I went to New Zealand, I was like, why? I mean, what on earth? Like, what's wrong with you? When I came to Fort Worth, it was like, why? Where? And, and, and so now, now that it's, it's Omaha, Nebraska, it's like, why? And, you know, I'm trying to explain to people that, why not? Yeah. I mean, why, why do we all have to aim for the same places? I mean, that's almost foolish. Yeah. So I've been, I've been quite content in going to places where there's so much that can be done and the fulfillment of, of our work and the fruit of our labor can be greater than in other places where it's just simply a bit too congested. And trying to do the same thing as everybody does it doesn't allow you or maybe it does, I'm not sure, but you have more freedom of creativity because you don't have boundaries or comparisons that you have to do like, you know, like this or like that to succeed. So I always find places where I see the horizon yeah. and, I, and I like to spend time, you know, developing something. To me, the journey is as rewarding as the, the, the goal. Well, and I think, um... I think the tr the path well trodden, which is what people expect you to do, you know, is surely the next career move is this. Surely the next career move is that. That's all very well and good if if you know if that fires you in the belly. But if if you have other ideas and you want to go and work in other places and you're happy and it makes you happy and it, and uh, you know you should go for it. I you know I, I I totally understand both sides of the argument. The people asking why because they think that you should do this or the other. Uh, and your answer, which is why not? I, I, yeah. <laughs> I've always gone for the why not. I like the why not answer. You know, well, why not? What's wrong with it? Um, <laughs> you know, there are plenty of conductors I know who, do, who think that conducting youth orchestras and amateur orchestras, or as they might be called in the US, community orchestras, are bad. Um, well, why? Why, are they, why is it bad? Why not go and conduct them? Um, because they, you know, they need music just as much as the professionals who, um, who are playing in their nice concert halls. Um, so yeah, there's, there's all sorts you can learn from doing all sorts of music making anywhere in the world. So yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Miguel, it's 10 questions time. And as ever, I start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Oh, the sound that I love is of a quiet stream 
just mm -hmm. perfect for fly fishing. Oh. And the sounds that I don't like is traffic congestion and honking and that type of noise. That just mm -hmm. I don't don't like it. If you had twenty four hours free, what would you spend it doing? I would be doing a hike and fly fishing combined. Uh, what is it about fly fishing that you like? Is it because your mind empties of other things? Exactly. You have to focus on nature, your surroundings, and patience. Because remember, it's called fishing, not catching. <laughs> and you may, maybe you can do it with one other person. That's about it. So yeah. it, it keeps it quite, quite intimate or loneliness is not the word but there's something good to be alone for for a little while mm, solitude yeah. solitude there we go mm. well, i love that line <laughs> it's called fishing not catching i should i should be stealing that <laughs> oh yeah I, th I didn't i didn't make up with it my, my fly casting instructor inspired me with that don't worry <laughs> <laughs> um the next one obviously you can have more than one conductor who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear well, I can only answer that with the ones that I've seen because there's a huge difference than the impact of somebody in, in a live performance can do versus other conductors of the past that we may have by reference. Yeah. So I want to exclude that. So I want to include only the ones that I, I've seen. And I would say that Maris Janssen, when I got, yeah. I, I never met him, but I got to see him conduct a Mahler 7 performance for instance for the first time it was so beyond anything I had heard or seen and then of course Kurt Mazur is one of my mentors but also the, the power of music that he was able to to communicate despite all his personal challenges both both physically and then then health-wise at the very mm. end I mean that to me speaks speaks so much about why we are musicians and I almost said Herber, Herbert Blomstedt but you have to remember that he's still around <laughs> he is yeah <laughs> so yeah. I should I should not, not count yeah, yeah. yeah you can you can move him into the favorite current conductor category any second now <laughs> well, I was I was going to say that because I went to see him and I chatted with him because I met him in my in my young days as a conductor and and he remembered me and but more importantly is that one amazing you know musician so basically when the conductors are not about the conductors is when mm. you know they, when that you hear the music through this these individuals uh, and, and so it uh, does he count as your favorite current conductor who is my favorite current conductor yes oh wow there's that's that's way too many because now unfortunately i i don't have the time like all of us to see other colleagues Yes, of right. course, yeah. Mm. So, but I mean, my goodness, between Esapek Casalon and Alan Gilbert, I mean, all our colleagues, and Karina you've mentioned, which I've seen, you know, only now through videos because I've, I've never, you know, seen her in person. I mean, there's Yap, so way, way mm. too many. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Well, that I know. It's Ligeti's Violin Concerto. Mm. <laughs> it's a piece that I've done only with Augustine Hadelik. Mm. And he wanted me also to do a recording of it. And I always stay away from the piece mm. because I knew about the piece to realize this is not my idiom. This is not, I just, the, the, you have to realize that there are some, there's music beyond our capabilities. Thank God, mm. you know, otherwise what would be, we would be machines. So 
that piece definitely because it was hard in every possible angle that I could think of, including you know dealing with ocarinas in the woodwinds or or scordatura, you know, violin, viola, and whistles with pitches. I mean, and what a marvelous piece! So, mm. but it took him to convince me, you know, <laughs> to do it. Let's do it together. And so I'm glad. I'm glad I, I jumped the cliff. But I don't know if I can do it all the time, knowing whether there's water at the end of the cliff or a safety net or nothing. Well, I, I have a little story about that piece, which you as somebody who's conducted it will appreciate. Um, we did it in Birmingham and uh, there, it's very small string forces. I'm trying to remember if there's either four second violin parts or second, or six second violin parts. Mm -hmm. I can't remember which. Four. And well, if there were four, I was, I was down as number five in the section. So I, I was off. Oh yeah. Um, and we were doing it two or three times that week, and I, I turned up for the last concert, um, knowing that you know I was in the overture, but I wasn't in the concerto. Uh, and there was a short thirty-minute seating rehearsal for the orchestra before that third concert. I turned up for the for the seating rehearsal. The orchestra manager came out and said, "Oh, I'm glad you're here. You're you're on the ligety." And I said, "Oh, what? Why? Um, well, uh, you know, the number number four has gone off ill." Um, you're on, uh, so get out there because the rehearsal is basically just for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went out and I had to sight read this part. And there's that whole movement where the second violin part opens out into four pages of of scales going upwards, of varying degrees of difficulty. And I remember opening up, it up, thinking, "Oh my God, this is it. This is the end of my career. <laughs> I'm going to sight read this." Um, I mean, I got away with it, but yeah, that was the hardest sight read I ever had in 22 years. Was that piece on about 30 minutes rehearsal? Um, yeah, horrendous. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Well, I have two answers, and you can choose one. <clears throat> one is generic. One is a book. Okay. Because think about it. there are those moments in which you have to turn your device right mm. to flight mode so you, you can't even read your or it can be off mm. so but a book it's a must and it can yeah. be a different book but that's not a specific book but in a specific item that I, I have to travel with is my to-go espresso cup mm. my reusable espresso cup which is I can show you now if you, later in a video because that to me it's a must I have to because when I take my espresso you know I take my own cup and I just enjoy walking with that it's just one of those little hidden joys <laughs> brilliant I shall leave both answers in um the next thing can be uh, real or fantasy what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor so if there's one thing I would change about being a conductor for me would be at times having perfect pitch mm -hmm. and at times not which is fine what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would like to be a historian, mm. but I would like to be a historian of the music of the Inca trails. You know, mm. Something that has not been addressed, has been addressed separately, but I've given lectures on this and that I think is fascinating to me. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? I think my last meal would be a good curry, vegetarian curry, like, like chana masala. Mm, that yeah. sounds great. And with it's, something to wash it down? Well, I don't drink when I eat, actually, of anything. But if anybody can find for me a gluten-free alcohol beer, that would be it. <laughs> well, I'll search for it. And then maybe after... 
COVID, we could sit down over one of those beers and have a good chin wag. Uh, Miguel, it's been wonderful, fascinating, and a lot of fun, and I hope to see you very soon. Thank you, Michael, for this. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to an English conductor who started out as a pianist, organist and harpsichordist, but is most well known for his work in the field of historically informed performance. For over 30 years, he directed the orchestra he had founded in 1972, the English Concert. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>